You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Introduce my colleague, uh, Professor Anna Dolan. Uh, Anna has worked uh, here, she's worked in UCD, she's worked back here since about 2002, seems like forever, and she's now going to address us on, 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 uh, on whatever it is. Okay. <laughs> most of the historiography of Ireland in the 1920s and 30s seems to leave. Book after book describes a flat, narrow place that lost the courage of its own revolution's convictions, a cruel, timid place that was hard on its weakest and too much enthralled to those who preached right from wrong. It is written as stubborn and wrong-headed, too accepting of its failures, too proud of its own parsimony, too quick to sacrifice another generation just to get by. Above all, it's written in anger, anger at those who seemed content to shut out the world and to let paralysis thrive. Though praise still comes for the feat of state building, for establishing a state in civil war, for consolidating it through the uneasy times beyond, the compliment is wearing thin. It has become harder just to admire the bricks and mortar, the more that becomes known about the kinds of threadbare life inside. For all sorts of reasons, disappointment might seem a natural response. Civil war made for a sorry start. For P.S. O'Hegarty in the victory of Sinn Féin, it was lapsarian. A plunge, as he puts it, from the heights to the depths. It was an Eden smashed into the tiniest bits, with the bitter knowledge that we had done it to ourselves. While independence demanded more than the illusions of a revolutionary's expectations, knowing, as O'Hegarty said, that we were really an uncivilised people with savage instincts was rather a cold place to start. Some who had fought for independence found themselves with, as one veteran put it, no wish to sacrifice myself in any way whatsoever for this benighted country, and that was before civil war had even begun. While the methods chosen to put down opposition once it did start, executions and imprisonment on a scale never conceived by the British during 1919-21, to did mark it out as an increasingly vindictive war, where the point was to crush the enemy, not fight towards victory or peace. And for a generation that had cut its political teeth on the consequences of Easter 1916's executions, and on waging campaigns from cells in British jails, independence was never meant to start like this. The extrajudicial execution of four anti-treaty prisoners on the 8th of December 1922, in reprisal for the murder of the pro-treaty TD and Brigadier General Sean Hales the day before, prompted Labour Party leader Thomas Johnson to declare, I am forced to say you have killed the new state at its birth. The Minister for Home Affairs, Kevin O'Higgins, defended the act as follows with, we have no talisman except force. The Irish Free State is just two days old. With time it grew into a particularly unpromising youth. It went awkwardly through its tedious years of adjustment, as V.S. Pritchard called them, and maybe fearful of the chaos from which it had come, it was firm with its opponents, careful with its money, and hard on those who needed its kindness most. The Free State gave itself over to a frenzy of respectability. It worried about the moral welfare of its citizens, censored what they watched, what they read, fretted about how they danced, even how they loved. It made it harder to be virtuous, when so many only seemed keen to see the sin. With a leader likened to the general manager of a railway company in President W.T. Cosgrave, the Free State would aspire to be economically respectable as well. The books should balance, and those deemed to be leading a parasitic existence by James Burke, the Minister for Local Government, 
counted fewer and fewer blessings in an Irish free state. As Jolie put it, the poor, the aged and the unemployed must all feel the lash of the liberators. Reducing the old age pension by 10% in 1924, admitting, as one uh, minister did, that people may have to die in this country and may have to die through starvation, believing, as another says, that it is no function of, the go- of government to provide work for anybody, independence, it seems, only helps those who help themselves. While the cost of civil war had been high, spending was cut from £42 million in 1923-4 to £24 million within three years, but income tax was also cut from five shillings in the pound in 1924 to just three in 1927-8. The Free State apparently settled for an economy built on agriculture. It settled even though Gordon Campbell, Secretary of the Department of Industry and Commerce, warned the government to be mindful of the risks, writing, If a nation is to depend on agriculture, it must produce mainly a population of farmers, men of patience, endurance, thrift, and modest intellectual aspirations. If it produces other types, it must export them at an early age, if it is not to risk the continual ferment of disappointed and distorted minds denied by circumstances their existence. Campbell was, in some ways, right. Many did leave, and not just his restless other types. As many as 150,000 agricultural labourers may have left the land in the 1920s, squeezed out of an agriculture that no longer needed them, and passed over by the Free State's First Land Act in 1923. There was to be no land for the people, as the revolution once promised, and with bad harvests, falling prices, and reports of near-famine conditions in parts of the West, the memory of the wartime agricultural boom seemed to mock this independence all the more. These quotes, these types of summations, are no doubt familiar to you. You've heard them before, and no doubt you will hear them all often again. Across the 1930s, we might seize upon equally resonant statements of a similar type. But Sean McEntee from 1938, for my purposes here, will suffice. And he said, In an effort to cope with this problem of unemployment, we've increased tariffs, we've shortened the working hours of the employed and given them holidays with pay. We have introduced quota restrictions and we have established virtual monopolies. We have more regimentation, more regulation, more control everywhere and more unemployed. Similarly, we could traipse our way through a whistle-stop tour of the many reliable political sites between 1922 and 1939. We might stop to stretch our legs at all the well obvious beauty spots along the way, but I'm not going to subject you to that. You know them well from the many political histories of independent Ireland that have dominated its study for so long. In recent years, the flowering of social and cultural history for this period has certainly added many of the harsh narrownesses of Irish life to the itinerary for our trip. We are often told that the censored, isolated culture of independence left its citizens a limited diet of westerns and romances and chopped up films that a paternalistic state thought them fit to digest. And while a buoyant and increasingly confident Catholic Church may have begun worried by the irreverence of the revolutionary years, it soon became certain, as one priest put it, that the old restraints would be again observed. In dance halls and in the length of women's skirts, it saw and decried the devil at every turn. Religious minorities in a state of more than 93% Catholics looked carefully and often quietly on. It could be a daunting place, no doubt, for those outside that muscular Catholic embrace. Magdalene laundries, industrial schools, institutions of every unfortunate sort kept those deemed to have transgressed largely out of sight. As Fanola Kennedy has reminded us, 
A child born outside of marriage was four times less likely than the progeny of its parents' married peers to reach the end of its first year. In the valley of the squinting windows, respectability was a cruel and exacting king. While brevity has lent itself to generalisation, maybe exaggeration, even caricature here, this is the kind of independent Ireland that tends to come from the pages of the historiography almost book after book. It is an historiography that is angry and disappointed with this past, and perhaps Ireland's problems throughout the 20th century and into the 21st have made it hard to absolve the 1920s and the 1930s of at least some of the blame. It is easy to find reasons to be angry. Read back through the 1950s, how could it be otherwise? The vanishing Irish are a bitter indictment of independence. No longer shall our children, like our cattle, be brought up for export. Too many of those children to whom de Valera had promised better in 1934 when he uttered those words were gone by 1954 for us to see him or the 1920s and 30s straight. Read back through the 1980s, again, how could it be otherwise? As more and more of the state's earliest records were released in that decade, they were fathomed and framed as dole queues and as queues for American visas grew and grew, as Northern Ireland tore itself more furiously apart. Clifford Gertz gave a theoretical turn to the frustration of another generation of Irish historians with this past. His view of what he calls the deflating experience of living in rather than imagining independence, I think strongly influenced Jolie's seminal interpretation of the 20s and 30s. It worked well with the anger of many of his conclusions, written through the 1980s and first published in 1989. Lee presented the Irish Free State as a disappointment, as he put it, in the context of historical expectations. It is a view that has been broadly perpetuated since. More recent research has focused on how the most vulnerable were treated. A generation of historians, perhaps shaped by the venomous referenda on abortion and divorce, shaped by a society still battling with its own sense of what secular meant, maybe had to speak up, if nothing else, to show how far Irish society has since come. As religious and institutional scandals made headlines, this was also a history that an Irish public was willing at last to hear. Nothing was as we would have liked it to have been, and as research has developed, the 20s and 30s have found more and more ways to let us down. Even though it takes in the political, social, cultural and economic, there is a striking sameness to how this disappointment was expressed. And it was there long before Lee. F.S. Lines' discussion of what he calls the partition, the island, begins that the revolutionary of today as the conservative of tomorrow is a truism of politics in no way contradicted by the recent history of modern Ireland. Within a few pages, the state slinks away to the flickering shadows of Plato's cave. By the time of the publication of Roy Foster's Modern Ireland, conservatism was simply a given. A chapter on the Irish Free State could begin as follows, with the rigorous conservatism of the Irish Free State has become a cliché. And like most clichés, it was found to have more than its share of truth. Theo Hoppen went further. Independent Ireland was not just conservative, it had, as he writes, a singular capacity for standing still. An Ireland going nowhere was his last word. Hoppin's definitive evidence, as he calls it, for this was Kevin O'Higgins' pronouncements on the conservative mind and nat- nature of Ir- Ireland's revolutionaries. O'Higgins' verdict crops up with monotonous regularity in assessments of 1920s Ireland, not least because, as Vice President of the Free State, he's an ideal witness for the prosecution's case. Indeed, O'Higgins himself became a fundamental part of John Regan's thesis 
that not only was this a conservative state, but it, but it had become a counter-revolutionary one, aggressively undoing the remnants of that which might have been revolutionary in the revolution in the first place. It's not easy to say. Uh, Regan concludes, it is the non-events, the absence of real extremes, ultimately the monotony of Irish politics, which remain most compelling. Compelling they may be, but they are non-events, absences and monotony just the same. Dermot Farish's The Transformation of Ireland demonstrates how much this sense of conservatism has shaped the emerging social history as well. Farisher ends by asking, as he puts it, what was it all for? Using Michael Moran, John McGahan's fictional veteran of the Irish Revolution, to sum up what Farisher calls the failures of Irish independence itself. Some of our own Johnnies in the top jobs instead of a few Englishmen, the whole thing was a cod. The kinds of personal costs Farisher saw many people paying may have prompted this view. And backed up by research since, on the cruelties at the heart of many Irish lives, it is a view that has taken root. Tom Bartlett's Ireland, published in 2010, records, as he puts it, plenty of fear and loathing, and it's not the Hunter S. Thompson type of, uh, of way, but rather, as he puts it, with a stifling consensus at the heart of Irish life. It seems the vocabulary has been settled. The severity of the adjectives is all that is left to disagree on. But does the conservative, inward-looking Ireland of much of the historiography stand up to even a simple test? One day, one random day of a national newspaper reaching approximately 150,000 homes, does it reflect this narrow place? On the 31st of May 1935, the Irish Independent noted the stuff of another day gone by. Readers read of the bustle of a coming by-election, of a police raid in Dublin, of Republican offices temporarily closed down. They read about Eamon Kant's last letter going on display at the National Museum, about 1916's rebels fated just as those coming among typewriters were seized and went still. They read of things changing, about Limerick's new TB hospital, about the city's 380 new homes. They read about nothing changing, about poverty and relief grants, about, about the things that stayed stubbornly the same as well. London made a statement about the Commonwealth and Dublin retorted with a predictably pugnacious reply. A bomb was thrown in Belfast and the journalist's brevity maybe says much of the South's view of that. In announcements of births, marriages and deaths, life went its own way on. The 31st of May 1935 edition does give us the historiography's familiar Ireland. There are traces of its predictable politics, its wayward economics. There's plenty to confirm the kind of life we have been told were there, the kinds of life we've been told were there to find. This national newspaper, and it could have been any newspaper, this day, and it might have been many other days, gives its own clear hints of the society the state had built itself upon. But in this one newspaper, on this one day, in all that lived cheek by jowl with the new houses and the old politics, there is the challenge of far more than we've come to expect to find. Noticing that this newspaper carried a considerable amount of foreign <coughs> news is not enough, even if its extent and its reach crudely question any easy assumptions that the Free State was a closed-off place. Of course, readers on the 31st of May 35 read of the fall of the French government, of Roosevelt's meeting with the Industrial Recovery Board, but Japan is there issuing warnings to China. Shots are fired at strikers at Rhodesia's <coughs> mines, and peace is hoped for between faraway Bolivia and Paraguay. Yet far more than this, the wider world is rushing in, revelling or revealing in a quite quiet and taken-for-granted fashion 
that lives were being lived in ways that an that an historiography convinced of homogeneity and isolation has not really sought to uncover. Front page advertisements vied with one another to twist readers off to Naples, Madeira and Cadiz. Cruise ships promised Egypt, Salaam and the Straits. With facilities on board, as it put it, for holy mass, Lamport and Holt cruisers knew their Irish market, or perhaps assumed they did. A 300-page brochure of Cook's tours is unsettling reading for an Ireland apparently at its wit's end in economic war. Seeing Soviet Russia, as another advertisement put it, is a puzzling invitation, if this is the free state of red scares, of so many prayers offered up to save the world from socialism and communism and to bring about the conversion of Russia most of all. The Irish independence of the 31st of May 1935 captures a place that seems hungry for the newest, the most modern of everything. Brownie crystal sets, every decker record in stock, hillmans or hubmobiles and other wondrous names if you had the money to spend. For all that has been assumed about inwardness and isolation, it is clear even in the columns of easily passed over classifieds that this free state thought itself or was cajoled by the advertisements to think itself an up-to-the-minute type of place. No frugal homespun Ireland here. From the second-hand wedding rings to the advertisements promising, as one put it, strictly private loans by post for the middle-class spendthrift, the free state was keeping up appearances, and there were appearances to keep. A Mr. Morrisoni Whelan offered private lessons, claiming dancing is now a social necessity. As a teacher of dancing, as he put it, to Castleknock, Clongos, Wood, Black Rock and Terranure Colleges, he taught the coming men of an, of an aspiring Catholic elite. However, quick steps and foxtrots on the curriculum of the best Catholic schools strike a slightly jarring chord with the chorus of clerics who currently populate the historiography railing against dancing as the source of most sin. On the 31st of May 1935, regardless of censored scenes, Dublin cinema audiences enjoyed Dashiell Hammett's The Thin Man, starring William Powell and Myrna Loy. On the same night, the Bohemian cinema offered due Seuss, and having played to packed houses for several weeks, there was clearly a popular audience for this critique of the anti-Semitism of the Nazi regime. Other days' examples suggest a greater openness still. In October 1934, the Irish press promised forthcoming concerts featuring Paul Robeson, Benjamin Yano Geely and Vladimir Horowitz. Conservative, isolated, censored, repressed. They do not sit so easily with the experience, or at least the opportunity, for dancing and Russian holidays, with all the interest taken in a wider world, or with sitting in the dark and lusting after Myrmaloi. We package a period and a people neatly up at our peril, particularly when just some of one day's newspaper can turn it all awry. Of course, the experience of Dublin cannot speak for the rest of the state, but one day, one random regional newspaper on the 26th of September 1925 stands up to the same scrutiny. The weekly Anglo-Celts, serving as its banner says, the readers of Fermanagh, Westmeath, Meath, Leitrim, Monaghan, Cavan, Longford and Louth, presents all of the same prospects almost a decade before. The stuff of the familiar narrative is there. News of disgruntled ex-IRA men meeting in Longford, reports of local councils, the detailed record of the most local of local news. One, as one headline put it, emigrating, a number from Carrigallon and other parts of Leitrim have left for the USA, which came just as a statement of accepted fact. It was a commonplace thing, like the death of a respected resident or the poisoning of a dog. There was all of the disappointed Ireland we've come to know, a column on religion, 
simply called the church, comes with all the certainty of that definite article. There was only one faith worth writing about, but even this does not sit easily. It is not a sanctimonious listing of local piety and prayer. Instead, it records the Pope's concern for the Czechoslovakian church and notices a new basilica in Quebec. It crows, certainly, about the ordination of a Jewish convert in Oregon. But though the terms and the tone may sit uneasily with us, this is still one day of a wider Catholic world than we have come to expect. Equally, the news of the week column ranged far and eclectically wide, while a Mrs McCarthy was noted, as they put it, as being badly injured by a freshly calved cow, and while it also included arrests and fines and other run-of-the-mill local and national things, readers also got 500 druses killed in Syria, and they got Lady Cynthia Mosley declaring herself as an out-and-out socialist into the bargain. Cavan and Mead and Leitrim and Loud were even offered the latest gossip on the King of Spain. He had arrived in Paris for the monkey gland treatment, and Cavan and Mead and Leitrim and Loud did not seem to need an explanation of what that meant. <laughs> but what maybe matters more is what passed as a given. Just one blank statement. A party of Irish farmers arrive in Denmark to learn new methods and to bring that knowledge home. While it is one thing to accept that the Department of Agriculture hopes to encourage Irish farmers to follow Danish ways, that simple passing sentence in the local paper shows the message was hitting home. An advertisement just two pages before for Denmark's pig powder, with its claims, as they put it, that it is now used throughout Ireland by all far-seeing pig feeders, may just have been brash and topical advertising, but it took the attraction of foreign modern methods as a given, and behind it lay the assumption that Cavan and Meath and Leitrim and Louth wanted to be far-seeing most of all. The Anglo-Celts told its female readers about new trends in furs, that Paris has gone in strong for lace gowns. And while the farmers' wives of Shercock and Kilachandra might well have scoffed, they still kept an eye to Paris all the same. Like the dancers of a decade later, the Anglo-Celts expressed no anxieties about any possible occasions of sin. With proceeds in aid of a parochial object, as one advertisement put it, with another dance in aid of funds for repairs of the curate's house, the Catholic Church's view of dancing was not so straightforward after all. It is not only the sophisticated metropolitans who seem to pass the test. This is not a plea for a swing to the other extreme, for the kind of revisions debate that has shaped the history of interwar Britain. Some there have strayed from the road to Wigan Pier because for them too many spent too much on cars and golf clubs and bungalows for Orwell to have it all his own way. But it is not about replacing the disappointed version of Irish independence with some blindly buoyant view, trading in the worst of times for the best of times because a few advertisements said we had everything before us after all. It is more of a plea for context, really. Context in all its forms. The context of the local and the particular. The kind of disruption that just one copy of the Anglo-Celt can bring. But also the context of what people at the time defined as their own expectations and norms. We can, for example, rail against the nature of poverty in the free state, but poverty is relative to its own times, abject according to each period's way of making ends meet. In 1923, Frank O'Connor got a job as a trainee librarian in Sligo's Carnegie Library on 30 shillings a week, and he writes, I found lodgings near Sligo Cathedral at 27 and sixpence a week and had a whole half crown for laundry, cigarettes and drink. Mother had worked it out that it would be cheaper to post my laundry home than to get it done locally, and every week I posted home my shirt, my underpants, a pair of stockings and some handkerchiefs. While it tells, while it, it 
this tells us something of his priorities, about the expectations that a man should have money for cigarettes and drink, while it may tell us more about his mother, who borrowed to buy him a cardboard suitcase to go, who agreed to add half a crown to his weekly wage, which she had to go out and earn herself. It gives us a scale, not thriving, not sinking either, but a sense of what it took to get by. And if that was getting by, one shirt on, one shirt off, in what many would have thought a respectable job, where the day ended with no dirt, with no calluses on O'Connor's hands, we have a far better sense of what poverty meant in 1923. His pity for what he called the poor country girl found sleeping in the garden of his lodgings, because, as he said, she had been thrown out by her parents and had nowhere in the world to go, said what he thought poverty was. We cannot chart the course of the haves and the have-nots without the struggle of the strivers in between. While our understanding of the lived experience has broadened, we have been quickest to find the cruelties that court records allow us to find. Infanticide, abortion, rape and child abuse have all been explored to quite striking effect. Indeed, much of this work has informed the acknowledgement that past wrongs have to be put right. But happiness, or what passes for it, has been harder to find. It leaves fewer traces and not as many pressing reasons to search. Yet it is needed, if nothing else, to set the awfulness against. Even a glimpse of happiness makes misery hurt the more. But happiness, or even the wisps of what might amount to it, are also needed, or is also needed on its own terms. So much of the history of, say, Irish sexuality, for example, centres on its repression and control. But is there any sense of love, even love aspired to or sentimentalised, even love reduced to the practical demands of the matrimonial classifieds? And I've yet to find it in much of the, the writing on it. I found two individuals, again through a stray search in the papers, perhaps stirred by spring to find a mate, who set out their terms in March 1930 as follows. Gentleman 30, strict teetotal with a nice capital sum, would wish to meet a young, respectable lady with a business or farm of his own, or of her own. She's not, he's not looking for much. Young lady Protestant, good family, some capital, wishes to correspond with varsity man or banker, age 40, view matrimony genuine. In both there is a sense of what was meant to impress. In both there is the tangle of respectability and class and maybe eventually something amounting to love. There are enough marriages captured on newsreels smiling at their outset of wedding <coughs> photographs, even idealised romances and cheap, cheap novelettes. Enough concern about the nature of courtship in dark and cinemas, even in ditches, in the back of cars, to suggest that there was at least some pleasure taken somewhere some happiness glimpsed, even if only for a short while, in independent Ireland. Writing in the context of censorship, Ferreter has argued, as he writes, that perhaps historians have fallen into the trap of becoming consumed with what Irish people were supposedly not permitted to do, as opposed to what they actually did. And while the extent of all the exhortations to stop might suggest that widespread moral laxity was maybe more the norm, Ferreter's principle could be extended far beyond that which was prohibited in cultural or sexual terms. It could be a broader plea for experience in all sorts of ways. While we know that people danced on despite the bishop's urgings, but they watched on despite the film censor's propensity to snip, the scope for the experience of what they actually did could be broadened in all kinds of ways, how they worked, how they spent their money, and how they spent the money they did or even did not have, how they lived and died according to their own lights. In a period of new political parties, new movements, new religious organisations, what was it 
not just to be counted as, but to be a member, to participate, to play a part, even to stand on the sidelines and just watch. The whist drives and dances, the outings and excursions, the strong social dimension built into every group, whether Fianna Fáil, the Blue Shirts, the Pioneers of the Irish Country Women's Association, suggests room to understand any and all um, of these groups as more than the sum of their manifestos or their well-meaning aims. The same Anglo-Celt carries notices of the first annual dance of the Mount Nugent branch of Cumann Gale, gents two shillings in, ladies only one and six, both significant sums when the likes of Frank O'Connor were expected to live on the little left of his 30 shillings a week. A social history of politics makes sense when tens of thousands joined Fianna Fáil's 1300 Cumann by late 1927, and some 50,000 joined the blue shirts and danced and cycled and picnicked, as well as saluted their way around their heartlands. So, socialising with those of the same class, of the same political mind. The back pages of party newspapers hum with the life of movements that have only been looked at in political terms. That much of the tension between Fianna Fáil supporters and blue shirts expressed itself, according to, to Department of Justice files, at rival dances is suggestive in itself. The same case might be made for religion. The sociability before and after religious practice in rural Ireland, where the weak might not have brought a single face, or in urban Ireland, where the weak might have brought none friendly or none known cannot be underestimated. While it, may have served, while it may have served to reassert a social order, a hierarchy of the holier than thou over those who stood at the back and held their own court, nonetheless the increase, particularly in Catholic lay organisations in this period, suggests the appeal of filling evenings with all sorts of sodalities and companionable good works. That the coming of BBC television to Dublin in the 1950s coincided with a fall in attendance at evening devotions, says something of this social role, a role that possibly played a far greater part in married women's and older women's lives, regardless of creed or church. And none of this is to undermine faith or to question the sincerity of party allegiance. It's just to suggest that politics and religion meant more than party and church. I think in some ways, the, the, what strikes me is most, I, I, I suppose, is majorities. And majorities pose a problem, no matter what they're made of. Convenience assumes homogeneity as a given, partly because the leaders leave more records than the followers, and it's easier to assume most dissidents left, and that most adherents did as they were told. Catholicism in Ireland particularly poses a considerable problem in this regard. The experiences of religious minorities have been more sensitively and more extensively explored. Ian Dalton has carefully teased out the type of, as he calls it, parallel Irish free state, created by the Church of Ireland community after independence. The same thoughtful consideration or curiosity about Irish Catholic experience has largely concentrated on rather straightforward assumptions instead, and has often been reduced to, I suppose, conclusions about the hierarchy's grip on the new state, or the, and the treatment of the Catholic population almost as, a, as an homogenous herd, easy, quite easy to pronounce upon. Inquiries into clerical and institutional abuse, the often painful progress to a more secular conception of personal morality have made it even more problematic to understand the experience of the 93% who tick the box for Catholic on the 1926 and 1936 census forms. The sense of an authoritarian church leading a pliant state by the nose is still a strong one. The role of the laity is harder to find, never mind the range of complex negotiations any individual made with their own faith. The comfort of faith is easily diminished, and the fear of sin or its consequences, the fiery certainties of hell, are probably and hopefully unfathomable to us now. 
The rise of indulgences in this period to offset time in purgatory is easily mocked for the shallowness of its own obsessions. The challenge, though, is to allow for the meaning people took from this, from their own piety, whatever form it took. Equally, there is a glorious disparity to upset any easy summation of Irish Catholic life that's relatively easy to find. In his book, for example, The Road Round Ireland, Porra Cullum noted the diversity even from parish to parish, never mind diocese to diocese. He writes, in Father Michael's parish, for instance, people are terrified of having a dance at their house and young men and women can meet only in the most furtive way. In the next parish, however, there is absolute freedom. He found that being seen to be pious was as much about the tyranny of neighbours' expectations as any priests. He noted that women in rural Kerry, as he puts it, put on their boots coming into the town so that they would be respectable looking at mass. Respectable of their religion, perhaps, but not giving their betters the satisfaction of sneering at their bare and dirty feet. For all sorts of reasons, Catholicism in this period has been easy to caricature, but there's far more to fathom in the nature of faith between the good intentions of a Sunday morning and the temptations of a Saturday night. But the Catholic Church has been key to the disappointments the historiography has expressed for so long, and summed up regularly in assessments of the special position of that church in the 1937 Constitution. Jared Hogan has taken historians' interpretation of the special position quite vigorously to task. He argues that it was meaningless in law, was overpowered by the freedom of expression of faith safeguarded by the same article, and in any case was liberal by comparison to many contemporary European states, such as Britain and Norway, where law enshrined an established church. The Constitution's explicit recognition of the Jewish faith, given the wider European context of 1937, he argues has been largely overshadowed by the obsession with more predictable concerns. Indeed, Hogan has identified a range of international influences on the Constitution, including the American Constitution, the Weimar Constitution, and admits that while aspects of Catholic social teaching are also evident, he asks whether we should default so readily to criticism of the source if the Articles had a positive practice in law. While some historians sense of the Constitution as a document drafted by de Valera, along with, as David Fitzpatrick puts it, Jesuits and other clerical advisers, has subsided to something more nuanced, the issue of influence Hogan raises presents a challenge to the broader historiography. The sense of an Irish state shutting out the world under the sway of a narrow Catholicism is actually undermined by the kinds of Catholicism that were growing in prominence. The rise of lay organisations such as the Legion of Mary, the growth of groups such as Muncher Matera, inspired directly by the 1931 papal encyclical Amo Anno, presented Catholic firmament bristling with all sorts of international influences. Catholic social teaching expressed itself in a multiplicity of ways, just as it did across Europe, from the winter-and-a-tier approach of local people working together to address local need, to the more extreme expressions of people like Father Dennis Fahey, Professor of Theology at the Holy Ghost Fathers Seminary, who was enthused by strains of continental Catholicism that saw Jews, Communists and Freemasons plotting world conspiracy at every turn. Catholic social teaching's amorphous capacity for best and worst was part of a wider ferment of discussion about how society might be structured, how the state might emerge. That much of this talk came to nothing should not underestimate the energy expended in the debate. The legacies of Catholicism from this, from this time may well be the very things that underlie the narrowness and the inwardness that disappoint so many when they look at this period, but this was part of the wider world rushing in nonetheless. Looking back, it may seem to be the essence of conservatism, but we cannot say it was not international and modern, just because we do not like the parts that stuck. All the 
prayers in favour of faith and fatherland in Spain, all the novenas to save the world from communism, even the fear that prompted James Hogan to ask, could Ireland become communist in 1935, are part of this same engagement with the wider world. That the majority sided with Franco's cause in Spain may not endear its instincts to us now, but those instincts were utterly modern and international for all that. When Patrick McGlinchey died in April 1933, this Donegal publican bequeathed a hall for public use in his parish, and he left a clear stipulation in his will, which said, no communist or anti-God organisation is ever to have the use of the hall, and no communist shall ever be elected a member of the Committee of Management. With his dying breath, he was fighting communism on his own front. Rafaud was his last stand, his Guernica. And in a way, it sums up, uh, if you like, the seriousness, if you like, of his fears. Fear, particularly fear of something that never comes to pass, is easily, often mockingly dismissed. The fear of the modern, the outrageous forecasts of doom, should a dance be danced or a book read, may seem ludicrous once the first step is taken and the world does not end. But in both the raging of all the King Canutes and in the force and the frequency of all the waves, Ireland was thoroughly transnational in its instincts, its fears and its appetites. The difference may well be in degree, but the perspective is where the challenge begins. France, Belgium, Italy prohibited the sale of contraceptives in 1920, 23, 26 respectively. It took the free state until 1935. And we need this type of context in all sorts of things. Emigration of Irish citizens beyond Europe, admittedly curtailed to America by quotas after 1924, saw over 1,000 Irish leave in 1935. That same year, Italy lost 26,800 and more. Poland, over 34,000. Greece, over 11,500. Rates two, three and five times higher per capita than independent Ireland. How many of England and Wales's 25,000 odd who left were Irish? The statistical ab- Irish statistical abstracts were maybe shy to say. But even the envied Denmark lost 2,214, again twice the Irish rate. But the state saw itself and was clearly recording itself in abstracts and other things, noted its own problems, its achievements in the context of the international information it could get, suggests a sense of a place in the world we sometimes underestimate, a sense of comparison that ranges far beyond the historiography's obsession still, I think, in this period with the Anglo-Irish relationship. In 1939, birth and death rates for independent Ireland nestled between those of Hungary and Italy, and the list in the Free State's statistical abstracts of itself is interesting, ranges from Australia to the Federated Mali Straits, taking in Costa Rica, New Zealand and the Argentine along the way. Independent Ireland was one of 48 states noted in those abstracts, including three separate categories to cover the complexity of birth, marriage and death in the USSR. Certainly, the disappointments of independence clearly come through in the statistical abstracts of the same year. While independent Ireland's population could boast a comfortable 27.6% of not 14-year-olds against a Swedish low of 22.2 and a Portuguese high of 31.9, too many had left for the states to rank so well in the category of 15 to 34. Only France had more citizens over 60 years of age than independent Ireland, one of Europe's older populations certainly, but this place certainly brought the expectation of a longer life. The state thrives or fails on a variety of scales, depending on how you choose to judge. The same comparisons can be made for every other tabulated experience between birth and death. What is striking, however, is the attempt clearly being made at the time to understand the state in those comparative terms, an instinct expressed in things like the Statistical and Social Inquiry Society of Ireland and its journal long before 
and after independence by journals like Studies, even in the daily newspapers and in the cut and thrust of Dáil and Senate debates. The range of countries referenced by contemporaries on topics as diverse as rates of illness or penal policy, the instinct to see the state beyond isolated Irish terms undermines the easy assumption that this was an insular and most of all an exceptional place. Any single year of papers read to the Statistical and Social Inquiry Society through this period suggests a will to compete and to be bettered by the comparative experience of the wider world. Indeed, choosing to see the protectionist policies of the 30s as emblematic of de Valera's conception of an isolated, uh, self-supporting economy says more about the lure of hindsight than it does about Irish policy in the wake of the Wall Street crash. Protectionism could never have been more international in the 1930s. John Maynard Keane told his audience in Dublin this when he lectured on national self-sufficiency in April 1933. I mean, the reluctance to undermine Irish exceptionalism is perhaps expressive of a fear that without it, the state simply fades into a kind of also-ran. Comparatively, the free state of the small civil war, its dead came to between 1 and 2,000, by contrast, 36,000 people over 1% of Finland's population died within six months in its civil war. The state returned to stability at a quite striking pace compared to Europe east of the Rhine. However much Kevin O'Higgins saw the threat of irregularism as he put it at every turn, this was no Hungary or Poland. Indeed, part of the shock of O'Higgins' assassination was that it seemed like an intrusion of the methods now assumed to belong to those earlier years. Economic fortunes, when viewed in isolation, may have been poor, more might certainly have been done, but for all the subsistence, even for the tragedy of starvation in Adragul and County Cork, where a family died at largely of hunger in March 1927, you could argue this was not the poverty Richard Titmuss described in the north of England and Wales at the same time, where he estimated that between 1928 and 1938, 150 Britons died from mal- malnutrition every day. The Great Depression saw exports fall by 65 to 70% in the free state between 28-29 and 32-3, but the fall was precisely the same in Argentina, Canada, Holland, Estonia, India and Spain. It was 75 to 80% in China, over 50% in 22 other key exporters at the same time. Even the economic war has to be reassessed, as I think our, you know, people like Kevin O'Rourke, Frank Barrier have already been doing. And has to be reassessed, I think, by historians as much more than de Valera's private battle against Britain. Britain's new national government of August 31 was committed to the protection of British agriculture before de Valera even came to power. How can we write of the failures of Irish independence, as Dermot Ferreter does, without a sense of what we mean by what anyone at the time could have conceived as success? The sense of the state as a conservative place is striking in the historiography. Conservative is, though, a relative term. But in much of the analysis, it is not clear who calibrated where radical begins and conservative ends. There is an acceptance that what passed for a political divide in Irish politics was simply a continuation of the civil war, that there was not the kind of natural division between right and left common to the rest of Europe, that there was a persistence of the national question to the detriment of a genuinely left-wing outlook in the state. The natural corollary of this is the fascination with the type of political cultures that found themselves more and more likely through the interwar period to take their rhythm from the beat of a fascist or a communist jackboot. The value of stability was not lost on Kevin O'Higgins, who, when speaking two days after a general election in Britain in October 1924, pointed out to his audience in Oxford University that since becoming a member of the Irish government, as he put it, I have shaken hands with four English prime ministers and may well be meeting the fifth any time now. While he was hammering home that the Irish were capable of ruling themselves, 
the comparative stability of the free state is nonetheless clear. And there were far more unstable places beyond the British Isles. As Jolie has told us, 14 parties won seats in Czechoslovakia's elections in 1920, 31 featured in the Polish results of 1926. Neither state, if you like, existed but in, the, in the same form by the end of 1939. Indeed, of the 22 democratic constitutions counted in 1920s Europe, the Free States was one of the few that survives. Eric Hobsbawm counted only five states in interwar Europe, whereas he puts it adequately democratic political institutions continued to function without interruption, and the Free State was one. Stability was a valuable commodity in interwar Europe, however much it seemed to look like stasis after 1945. The sense, though, that the state lived in the shadow of its revolution, that its political life was defined by the Civil War divide, deeply underestimates the intensity of bread-and-butter politics from the very outset. It is there to be found in the extent and the range of legislation passed, while the frequency with which questions of land arose in the Dáil in this period is suggestive of a policy moving naturally and maybe ploddingly on. The election literature of all parties across the period show that pounds, shillings and pence mattered when it came to the ballot box. A Comunigale supporter saw his party's defeat in 1932 in quite plain terms and said, I met some hard-headed, wealthy, middle-aged, large-familyed Mayo shopkeepers that I know on the train. Their enthusiasm and determination for the Fianna Fáil policy of high protection and development of the country's resources by strong measures was astonishing. And the most curious thing was that they had no delusions about de Valera's own personality and culpability in 1922. But what matters now, he has is that he has the right policy and we'll see it through and make it succeed. This questions, I think, David Fitzpatrick's view that affiliation, as he writes, to de Valera's Fianna Fáil was primarily determined by the legacy of the Civil War rather than by the appeal of specific policies. One party certainly presented itself as the men of no property, aimed, as they said, to speed the wheels and speed the plough, and even had the arrogance to promise to abolish unemployment in 1933. For Kevin O'Rourke, who writes, the claim that Irish party politics has been informed not by economic differences, but rather by idiosyncratic, quasi-tribal factors, is not supported by the evidence. The Civil War mattered. Of course it did. I mean, I have to say that. I've written a bloody book about the commemoration of the Civil War. It remained a handy register of abuse, but we take too readily for granted that politics in the state was bound to be disfigured by the hatreds, betrayals and disillusionment of the Civil War, as Fergus McGarry writes. In the 1920s and 30s, military service pension applicants from both sides requested supporting references from old Civil War enemies. It seems to have taken the historiography longer to get over the divide. It is still looking for the divisions, not necessarily looking for what put this place very quickly back together again, and in some ways that's the most striking thing about it. In March 1923, George Russell lamented for what he calls that the mass of people in the country continue to think as they did before the revolution. Revolution, he said, triumphed solely in externals. The fundamental fabric was not expected to change. For Patrick Lynch, writing in 1966, independence amounted to, as he puts it, the social revolution that never was, and most historians have accepted his traditional sense of what that revolution should have been. Lynch blamed the dead hand of the civil service in the new state. The continuation of nigh on 98% into independence meant, as he puts it, that the conventional wisdom of Whitehall far outweighed that of Connolly or Pierce. The same continuity of service could also be the very reason why the state survived. There were relatively robust institutions functioning relatively quickly, and Lynch's assumptions failed to take account of that, or to recognise the fundamental rights and liberties enshrined in the state from the outset. 
The sense of an absent social revolution may instead reflect a will to impose a chronology that simply doesn't fit. Social revolution may well have predated the political one. We may need to look to the changes of the late 19th and early 20th centuries in terms of land ownership and local government, and in terms of the changing expectations of more relief that came with things like the old age pension. A small farmer was able to speak in the mid-1920s of what had been gained by the land revolution, what had been gained, as he put it, by the political revolution, had not yet come, as he said, into his consciousness. Whatever either revolution meant to him, they were distinctly separate things. While the Irish welfare system lagged far behind its British equivalent, improvements, you could argue, were made nonetheless. Changes came, whether with more pensions, more allowances or more reforms of the conditions of work, that there was still so much to do maybe emphasises the value of the little that was achieved. Because the source of much of the change was Fianna Fáil, because, as Sean McEntee has already admitted it in spite of it all, there was still more unemployed. Many have refused to accept that if there may have been a social revolution, McEntee's party might well have been its likely source. When Minister for Local Government and Public Health Sean T. O'Kelly bragged in Madal in 1937 that the Labour Party had no more responsibility for the passing of the widows and orphans' pensions than the King of Bulgaria, he kind of had a point. Hindsight might hope to find a different kind of social revolution, but if electoral results are any measure, then independent Ireland showed little appetite for more than what it got. If independence was a far cry from the Limerick Soviet of 1921, where V.S. Pritchard was told to leave his hat on because they had finished with bourgeois manners, indeed if bourgeois manners were the very thing that triumphed in the free state, maybe there were other kinds of social revolutions to look for. They may have come in the shape of a crystal radio set. For George Bernard Shaw, one radio in the small places he put it meant overnight the village was in the 20th century. They may have come with the crackling of gramophones breaking the silence. In the records that brought jazz to Belmullet and Caruso to the tenements, they may have come with access to running water, to electricity, to more shop-bought goods, more sociability, more houses, more bicycles, more cars. The Shannon scheme was not just a symbol of the modern in the state, it was a means of social change. And perhaps above all, social revolution came for one example of a woman called Miss Newton of the Big House, as Pori Cullum described her who, as he puts it, uh, or, or he captures, uh, as she sees it, the kind of social revolution she had experienced. And he writes, We have had a great come down. We were once everything in the country, and now we count for hardly anything at all. For her, as he writes, the real signs of an accomplished revolution came in who administered local power. The head of the civic guard in her area was now, as he puts it, the son of the smith who used to shoe Miss Newton's horse. Cullum saw it in a trader's widow, who could put up an altar in the chapel, as he writes, at the cost of a thousand pounds. He saw it in the grandson of a labourer, who was now the richest man in the place. It was perhaps born of narrow ambition, but it was a social revolution nonetheless. And I'll finish very short. There is much work to be done in order to understand the nature of social mobility in the new state, to grasp the gradations of class, particularly in rural Ireland that he's hinting at there, and to measure the power that Tuppence Hayton exerted over Tuppence. Even Frank McCourt had someone to look down on in Limerick's lanes. There may have been no social revolution of the sort expected, but respectability ran rampant. And in fathoming that, I think we begin to see why some prospered and why some failed, why some daughters were kept at home, why others were put away out of sight. Its history is in the steady slights. A tender for the construction of 14 houses by Burr Urban District Council was advertised in October 1934 in the Irish press. The tender referred to them as 14 
working classes houses. Even in that misspelt word, we begin to see why some were never allowed to forget the help they got. The power of local charity over local need, of local credit over local debt, the power of parents over daughters and sons, spouse over spouse, the tyrannies of propriety in a small place need to be further understood. The concentration of power in central government in the new state has been well noted, but who ordered out the everyday in society as a whole? Sean O'Fuelon, reflecting on three decades of independence, noted as follows. We have had our protesters, sometimes violent, rarely articulate or creative, but they have been all too few. So that if a politician asked, what exactly do they want, then they rarely do know. For Dermot Farrater, writing nearly 60 years after O'Fuelon, as he puts it, the real surprise is that, most, that more unrest was not shown by those most distressed. It's as if George Bernard Shaw's view still holds. Voicing his disappointment with the prospect of censorship in 1928, he complained, the average man is a coward. And so much of the disappointment with this period of Irish history seems to echo this sentiment. And yet so much that is now perceived as conservative in the state often had overwhelming popular support, even had advocates prepared to push for what seems even greater repression. The voices that spoke up for women's rights were largely ignored. The concerns some fathers had that the farmer's dole might undermine their control of their sons. The failure to raise the schooling age because the need for a child's labour was too pressing for too long. These and so many other examples suggest people were not always thwarted. They just were not prepared to do as we hoped they should have done. The number and extent of inquiries instituted by the state in these two decades suggests that curiosity was there to see and perhaps improve people's lives. But most investigations were shelved and not acted upon. But that tussle between the instinct to know and the inability to act has more to give us than just the disappointment that nothing was done. There were eloquent contemporary critics of independence and much eloquent criticism since, but the experience of the 20s and 30s is too diverse to settle for criticism alone. Cullum leaves us with the house or the home of Pierce Moynihan, somewhere in the Midlands. A four-roomed house and a 12-acre farm. Moynihan had several children in America, two sons and one daughter, still left at home. With pictures of America on the wall, his daughter was in a hurry to be on her way. As Cullum writes, she had no need to leave, still she had no wish to settle here. The youngest son, as he writes, was very hostile to the government. They were spending the people's money on themselves, the people were better off under the British, and all that sort of thing. The eldest son, who had fought in some way for this independence, had a different view. He is interested in agricultural organisation abroad, and had heard of conditions in Denmark. All that he said, Colin writes, about the conditions and problems of the countryside was thoughtful. He was looking outward, hopeful for the future, for change. And I suppose this sums up most of what I've been going on about. In these four rooms, 12 acres and three siblings, there's more than the sum of our disappointment. The lives that were lived were far, far more vivid than that.